This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. DOE takes earth modeling to exascale. And the UK bets big on AI. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research, distributed in partnership by Top500.org. I'm Addison Snell with Intersect 360 Research. That's Michael Feldman, editor at Top500.org. Michael, This Week in HPC, we've been talking a lot about exascale applications, particularly in the U.S. as these architectures start taking form. But we've wanted to know more about the software and applications going into them now We've got an example to work from as the DOE is showing us a, a whole earth weather and climate model that they say is exascale ready. Right. And this has been, uh, this has been in development for four years and it's something called the energy exascale earth system model E3SM. And they're describing it as the, uh, the first end to end multi-scale earth system model. So they're, they're coupling a whole lot of different simulations of, of the atmosphere, the the land and the ocean, sea ice, um, and other elements, uh, climate related, uh, even even some some geophysics in there to to bring all the Earth systems together and to predict things like weather, climate, ocean circulation, and that sort of thing. Um, and it's it's very ambitious, but they have been working on this for four years. So what they've come up with was something like you said that they think is ready for the exascale systems when they arrive in a couple of years, um, but they're also testing them now on, on prototype systems and much smaller systems as well. Well, first of all, one of the great things about weather and climate modeling is it's one of these truly arbitrarily scalable applications that we can keep in, trying to increase the resolution, the fidelity of these models, but getting extreme long-range forecasting or extreme specificity in locality and weather um, you know, long-term climate modeling that take into account all of these different systems, the, the, you know, the wind, the oceans, the ice, the solar, it, it just becomes such a hugely uh, complicated model that, that we can always add more complexity to it. We've been talking about whole earth modeling ever since the earth simulator supercomputer in Japan. And this takes that another step where it does try to integrate these a step farther. And what they say they're achieving in this as they move toward exascale is getting um, weather simulation level predictions out of a whole earth climate model. So we're, we're getting a, a locality or specificity at the level of, of weather forecasting out of a whole earth multi-year model. That is a huge step forward. Right. It's a very high resolution model um, because they, they anticipate the computational power behind it are going to be these exascale machines. So they've made sort of this, this bet and, and they've developed the code with that in mind. And they're going to be able to answer a lot more granular questions because they have that sort of resolution. So things like when they ask questions about droughts, about sea level rises, about the intensity of of hurricanes and other storms, um, they're going to be able to do that more easily because of that resolution. Uh, so this is something, you know, sort of this, the, the DOE is, is, has been working on with lesser models for a while, and now this is just a step forward. The, the question is, is, is what they actually have done here, because they don't talk about sort of the architectures of exascale that they're, they're targeting. You know, they do say one of the big successes uh, that they've achieved is on the performance of this model on, on prototype exascale computers, where they're saying on a, on a per node basis, the model is able to run faster 
and use less power than on quote unquote conventional architectures. And that's because they've done work on scalability and vectorization and other types of software engineering, but they don't talk specifically on what architectures they're actually uh, targeting. Uh, if they're multiple architectures, if they're talking about a, an accelerator-based architecture or something more like just a, uh, a monolithic many-core architecture. So there's it, a little bit of a question mark on what they've actually done here and, act and how they're actually going to be able to, to transfer this work to those uh, different types of exascale machines once they appear. Yeah, I think that is a key question. Now, the thing to like about this is that it is a multi-lab effort with scientists from all of the different major DOE labs contributing work to the project. But to your point, that doesn't provide a clue as to which architecture this is for. And you know, that could be very different. I personally would be surprised if this is a simple recompile going from one major exascale architecture to another. One of the challenges that's been presented by the different uh heterogeneous approaches to exascale is that uh, we, we don't re have simple portability to one to the, from one to the next. So I do have questions about what architecture is this designed or optimized for? Do they think this will run better in an open power kind of model? Or is this uh, an Intel-driven model, potentially something like the, the as-yet-unannounced architecture that we'll see at uh, in the Aurora supercomputer at Argonne, uh, it's uh, inquiring minds want to know. I believe that it's exascale. I'm not sure I'm convinced that it's multi-platform exascale. I'm thrilled to see the application out there either way. Yeah, well, the fact that they've been working on it for four years means they've sort of had a lot of time to think about some of these, some of these issues. I, you know, I have a feeling the assumption when they talk about an exascale supercomputer versus something more conventional or what we have now is they're thinking about a many many core node model um, uh, connected you know with with a reasonable number of uh, of servers so you could still do MPI but with many core nodes so you can abstract away the details of that to some degree uh, in the application software just by you know doing conditional ifs and 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 you know bringing in different libraries if if you need them to do an accelerator model versus a more monolithic model but yeah it's it's a little bit tricky um but i have a feeling they wouldn't say they have this this uh this program unless it's either ready to do that or or can be done with that as it stands now there's there's no reason to create uh, this program that's only going to work on on this sort of a, maybe an open power GPU type uh, architecture or a monolithic uh, processor architecture, if it if it couldn't transfer from lab to lab or even to to university systems as they as as they you know get their exascale systems further down the line. So I have a feeling they've done some work in that area, um, and and this thing is going to be ready for you know at least the foreseeable exascale architectures that we're talking about today. Well, I'll take that bet. I think this is going to be a single architecture uh, as it gets deployed. It'll be for one particular national lab. It, with work, might translate to another. But I, I think at this point it's enough of a moving target that if you get it going on just one exascale architecture, that would qualify as a win. 
Meanwhile, this week in HPC, we've talked about AI occasionally from time to time on this prod, on this program. And uh, here's a big AI story as the UK has now got a public-private partnership to commit a billion dollars in funds for AI development. Right. They're calling this the AI sector deal. So like you said, it's, it's bringing the government, the industry, and, and even universities uh, into this funding. So they've, they've allocated 603 million pounds of new funding, and that's added to 342 million in money that's already allocated to this, this, these AI programs in existing budgets. They've got close to a million pounds, which works out to about $1.3 billion, a little bit more um, of money. So that's a big investment uh, they put out a policy paper saying where some of those investments are going, but in general, they want to establish policies and programs that will encourage other companies to invest in the UK in these in this AI technology and also allow the the existing expertise in this area in the UK to to uh, further develop their technology and to export the technology to to other areas and thus bring revenue uh, into the country. So it's sort of everything for everybody, but uh, it's a little nebulous where all this money is going to get spent and how it's really going to do this, because as we've talked before, it's really the big hyperscale companies that are driving AI technology these days from both a revenue basis and from a from an intellectual property basis. Yeah, that's essentially the nut. You refer to this policy paper, which is unevenly written and poorly organized. It's one of these policy papers that, that seems to be written by committee that at one point put, points out quite uh, with, with grandiosity that AI is projected to add more than 630 billion pounds to Britain's economy by 2035. To me, that's a dubious claim. I would like to see how they come up with that, that net you're, you're better off by that much money because of some kind of investment in AI. You know, how are you breaking that out? If, if I buy smart speakers from my home, are you counting that as part of the AI market, even if I would have bought speakers otherwise? I, I don't get what that is. And when the paper refers to the UK having the ability to become a world leader in AI, uh, I don't know how to react to that because I don't know what it means. What does it mean for a country to be a world leader in AI? As you, as you just said, the leaders in AI right now aren't countries, they're companies. And they're multinational companies. Now, many of them have headquarters in the U.S. and some have headquarters in China. Is that what you mean, that, that you think by 2035 a U.K. company will be one of the world leaders in AI? That sounds... Again, dubious to me. Now, maybe you mean in certain sectors, like in, say, finance. I would believe that uh, UK-based financial institutions could benefit from public-private partnership and government investment to bolster their AI initiatives, but that's going to be part of the R&D for these companies anyway. So, you know, do, does it help a company if the government picks up part of the R&D tab, regardless of what industry it is? Yeah, sure. I believe that that helps a, helps a company, but this is a, this is a fairly grandiose initiative that I think has a lot of hand-waving behind it. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it tries to cover all the bases, but I, I think the thrust of it is, and I think it's a valid thrust, is to 
encourage the development of intellectual property that is maintained in the country, whether that's in DeepMind, uh, which is based in London, but actually is owned by Google or, or some other company. I mean, the, the country itself can benefit downstream from that and draw more, more of this intellectual property into the country. Now, if they want to build something like you know, a Google in the UK, that's a, that's a tougher thing to do because they have to somehow establish, you know, a big multinational there, sort of what I said, putting a, a Barclays of AI into, into London or something like that. Um, that's, that's a tougher thing to do because those companies sort of grown organically because uh, of, of the conditions, the other conditions in, in, the U.S. and and to some extent in China, when we talk about country or companies like Tencent, Baidu, and Alibaba, so the U.K. doesn't have those conditions exactly. So it's going to be harder to do that. But to encourage intellectual property to form and to spread, uh, I think is an easier thing. Now again, it's nebulous whether that becomes uh, lets them become a world leader in AI. That's that that's sort of a hard thing to measure, but certainly to to expand their 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 global footprint, uh, I, I think is a worthy goal, and I think it's something that can be done with these government and public private uh, public uh, private uh, programs. The one area where I do believe in it uh, in this investment from the government side, for sure, is in the, the notion of infrastructure. And the paper does, as you pointed out, refer to. Uh, government investment uh, countrywide, for example, in 5G networks. But that's a different pot of money that's yeah. only tangentially related to the the AI initiative. It's just that when we talk in projects of this large a scale on the technology side, where you're talking 15 to 20 years out, this is a 17-year time frame they're talking about by 2035, it's just so difficult to make long-range predictions of that nature, you know, what did we predict about AI 17 years ago, you know, right around the turn of the century? No one was was really talking about it at that level. We did have the World Wide Web then, but to look across the arc of technology that really fundamentally changed the way businesses get done, you do have generally generationally a few things like that, like personal computers in the in the 1980s or the internet in the 1990s and then you know the world wide web coming after that you know, is ai that nature of thing that really needs uh that level of investment I, smartphones after that personal devices uh is certainly a, a, another one that you could argue really fundamentally changed the way everybody did business um, AI, I think, is going to get integrated into a lot of things. Um, does it need government, public-private partnership to help reshape industry? I'm less sure. And in terms of the projections of what it means for one nation's economy over a 20-year period, I think you could put any number on there and, and try to find some justification for it. And no one's going to come back 18 years later and tell you whether you were right or wrong. Well, right. Yeah, that was that was something to rationalize some of these investments for other policymakers and just sort of get the uh, get the interest going. So the numbers themselves are really just pointing in a certain direction. Um, but right. I mean, like you said, uh, AI, the, the sort of the, the industry um, benefits from certain types of infrastructure in these in these countries. And the reason that AI is big and hyperscale 
companies now is because it's it's basically data dependent. So all the data that got collected from the Googles and the Baidus of the world is able to be fed into these deep learning models. Um, and, and these are the models that actually are driving a lot of AI today. Now in 20 years down the road, it might not be as data dependent as it is today. AI might be a totally different animal or at least has expanded into something totally different where you don't need a large population with smartphones that are feeding models and, and doing things like that. It, it might be uh, more standalone type of intelligence, artificial intelligence that that doesn't require that. And the hyperscale companies might not uh, be able to dominate in the way they do today, but that's sort of hard to predict. So when you look at these government uh, policies, uh, you have to sort of take that into account, look more long-term on what the fundamental conditions are in the in the country uh, and sort of encourage that uh, sort of innovation at a more basic level. And I think part of that is what they're trying to do here, but part of it, they are making some assumptions about, you know, the, the shape of AI today and, and how to capture that. All right, Michael, two new supercomputing and AI-related stories. Our listeners can read more about them in Michael's editorial on top500.org. But, uh, Michael, thanks for the interesting talk. Yeah, two interesting stories this week uh, at sort of different ends of the scale. And, uh, yeah, it always seems to be coming with news like this at least once a week. We get a good AI story and a, and a good high-performance computing story. We'll be back again next week. Thanks to you for tuning in. You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing. For more information, visit intersect360.com.